Check out the Class X podcast, where two social science teachers look at culture and philosophy independent of ideology. If you're into analysis of anything from Netflix's new show, The Chair, to Anthony Bourdain's legacy, to an exploration of hip-hop artist Aesop Rock, this is the podcast for you. Check it out on whichever podcast app you use. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast making you rethink what you think is funny so that it is no longer funny. Today's topic is stand-up comedy in the internet age. I'm here with three comedians to talk about the up and downsides of this, the future that is now. I'm Mark Lintzenmeyer, determined to be the least amusing person in the discussion. And my guest, Rodney, start off. My name is Rodney Ramsey. I'm a stand-up comedian from Montreal, Canada. Also an actor and a writer and the co-owner of the Unknown Comedy Club, a virtual comedy club to stand up live. It's the only one in, up in here, Canada. Yeah, so uh, that's me. All right. A veteran of this podcast, another veteran of this podcast, Daniel Lobel. Tell us a little what you're doing. I'm writing comic books. I have a series called Fair Enough, and I have a documentary coming out this year about doing comedy in Spain. Well, and the Modern Day Philosophers podcast, which you were on this podcast before talking about with us. I had reached out to you guys because I knew you were doing things to hustle besides merely going to clubs and doing stand-up gigs. And that is why I also reached out to a person brand new to me, new to this podcast, Dina Jackson. Introduce yourself. Tell us what you're up to. Thank you for having me. I'm a stand-up comedian as well. I'm also a speaker. I speak on mental health, wellness, that sort of thing. And I'm also a writer. And wasn't there something with physical activity? Physical act, uh, yoga, maybe? Yoga. Is that yes. Okay, yeah. How do the yoga and the stand-up, are you doing stand-up from a lotus position? What is the exact, are these completely different revenue streams, I guess I'm asking? They kind of all come together. That's why I speak about wellness. And I feel like if you're going to be a speaker on a topic, you need to be an expert on it. So I teach yoga as well and mindfulness. And then in relation to comedy, I kind of feel like that's what keeps me balanced in the entertainment world, which I'm sure Daniel and Rodney understand. There's lots of ups and downs. So that's personally how I manage that. So the traditional model of doing comedy is you construct a comedy set over a year. Maybe you guys have different habits here. Maybe if you're lucky, you get a, to put out a special and then you move on to the next thing. But now it seems like, well, there's YouTube. Probably anything you're doing is going to appear in front of I don't know if I'm going to a comedy club, I check out the people beforehand. It would be disappointing if I heard exactly the same set on YouTube that I'm about to go see. Is this a significant barrier for you folks at this point? No, not for me anyway. First of all, I don't think anything you see live is ever the same as what you see in a video. I also don't think people have the retention to remember everything they see in a video, unless there's some sort of savant. And, you know, people riff on stage. I personally always try to try something new when I'm up there for the fun of it for myself. But even if I was theoretically doing the exact same show that you saw on YouTube, I don't think you'd feel you were seeing the same show. You guys agree? You know, if the joke is like really good, like, uh, like Daniel said, first of all, I don't think I've ever told the same joke exactly the same way. You know what I mean? And even if it is the same joke and it's a good joke, Yo, man, I'll listen to the same song like over and over and over again. And then I'll go see that song live. I think one of the core mechanics of a good comedian is a comedian that's determined to keep writing. And if every joke's exactly the same word for word, not a good comic. I agree. I also think there's something just very special about being live. There's just an energy in the room, no matter what it is, whether it's a music show or a comedy show or 
you know, a baseball game. Like it's just not the same thing. And so I think we all missed a lot of that over the pandemic and we're feeling it again. So a lot of people are just very excited. I'm sure you guys are seeing this at when you're at comedy clubs. People are excited. They want to be in a live space again. So it's it's just not going to be the same as a recording. Recordings are great, but they're not the same. So is that going to ruin your business, Rodney? So you're you're talking about the Unknown Comedy Club, which Dina has appeared on, right? Or you're about to? Oh, no, I have many times. The Unknown Comedy Club is its own space. Rodney has mastered the Zoom space. <laughs> <laughs> Describe what that is even amounts to, because this seems like a whole... I don't have to tour anymore. I could potentially just broadcast things. You know, I think people recording their sets would probably be the least. I've tried to just in an audio format, like let me write some jokes and then record it as a podcast and not having that audience interaction. You know, you might as well just be writing. Why even perform it if you're going to do that? Funny thing is you talk about YouTube and like, I don't know, I think YouTube in its way kind of adds to stand up because people get to discover more comedians. And I think that this new medium with Zoom also kind of is another layer that adds to stand up, but doesn't kind of take away from it because none of the shows at the Unknown Comedy Club are to just blank Zoom screens, right? Like there's no void, there's no darkness. Yeah, you know, we encourage people to keep their cameras on and their mute buttons off. So that means that when you tell a joke, you hearing laughter, right? There's going to be people in the room that'll laugh back. And immediately, once you hear more than like five to like 10 people laugh at your jokes, real time, comes live comedy and you can see them and then you can start riffing. You know what I mean? So like, I don't believe things opening up again is going to take away. I think like it's a medium that exists parallel to what's happening now. Cause like I got guys who will go do a show live and then they'll come hop on at my room after or vice versa. You know what I mean? So now people can do time when they get home. Like that is wicked. I never thought that was going to happen ever to me. It's just like future of standup, you know, just an extension of what it already is. I would just add to that, having done it, is that it is very much still a live event. Like Rodney was saying, he's got all this cool virtual reality stuff going on. He's got an avatar of himself. you know. So there's a lot of creative things that he's using in the web space that you can take advantage of, but you can still have a live audience there. So for me as a comedian, I want to make sure if I'm using something like Zoom, which you would be for the Unknown Comedy Club. I like to have it set on gallery view so I can see the entire audience and people are responding. And actually one show I did of Rodney's, someone farted quite loud in the middle (laughs) of my set. Very memorable. (laughs) So his whole screen lit up. So you knew he farted. (laughs) It's so good. We got that recorded. We got that. It's so good. And I know Daniel and Dina as well. I have not, since you only confirmed yesterday, I have not listened to your podcast, but I I know you both have podcasts. So are these both, I know Daniel's is like talking to other comedians. Dina, what's sort of the premise of yours? It's speaking to other comedians, uh, but it's sort of still based in the mental health world. So it's called the Ego Podcast. And it's all about dealing with ego in the entertainment industry and how to navigate that. And so that can translate into any industry. What are the people who I bring on, what are they doing to manage their mental health and stay balanced? And so a lot of them practice meditation or mindfulness, or they do some kind of physical exercise to kind of stay balanced. And so that's typically what it's about. For the most part, I would think that that's kind of a separate activity. You know, you have your constructed stand-up set, you're going out, you're being the performer, as opposed to having a conversation with people. I know, Daniel, with your style of performing, it seems like your podcast is sort of part of the continuum that even though you're not in front of an audience, 
you're with a funny person, you're kind of riffing in the same way that you might under an audience. Do you see it as like a fundamentally different supportive activity to your stand-up or is it like a different stream or kind of all the same thing? It's all comedy. I think it's all just comedy. You know, the difference is tightness. You know, when you're on the podcast, you're not worried about where your punchlines are. But as you brought up, I do a lot of storytelling, longer form stuff. So it's not one-liners. So there is some kind of crossover to what I do on the podcast in that respect. At the core, I'm a storyteller. You know, I come to realize that over the years about myself. You know, you get into stand-up and you're not like, I'm, I'm going to be this kind of comedian. I'm going to be that kind of comedian. You just want to be a comedian, I think. And most people aren't. I don't think, I've never met a comedian that's like, I'm going to become a one-liner comedian, you know, or whatever. You just, you're like, I'm funny. I'm going to go and find my style. And like nearly 20 years later, I feel confident in saying that my style is telling stories. It's what I enjoy. It's what I started doing. And to some extent, I feel like that's what almost all of art is, is storytelling. Books are storytelling. Movies are storytelling. Even paintings tell a story. Maybe we don't even need to separate anything. We should just say it's all storytelling, in which case I'm not doing anything special. And uh, I just wasted everybody's time. <laughs> That's what I say every time I'm done listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about the rest of you in terms of this? Is it this sacrosanct, the stand-up space where I have my set? Whether it involves some ad-lib or you know continual refinement, but some people see that like, this is my high adrenaline moment and I'm on stage. That's definitely how I feel like between, you know, as a performing musician, you know, it's a definite, I'm in that space. I've kind of evolved over the years to be able to kind of slow down and talk to the audience more, tell more stories, make it a little more not as unlike if I were playing you songs from my living room. But again, that might just be like, like Daniel, just the style that I have particularly evolved into and not something inherent. I think there's still a lot of performance of, of both types that see a huge, I'm on stage, I'm actually interesting now, and now I'm off stage, and you really should not expect me to be <laughs> at all amusing or interesting because I'm not doing the shtick right now. I'll add that music is storytelling too. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Do you feel like you need to be on all the time? Yeah, well, I mean, you're doing a thing right now. So is this just, this is just a, this a side thing. This is just talking about my art. I'm not, but actually more people will hear this than will hear your stand-up set. So God damn it, <laughs> be funny. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I never feel the pressure, man. And I can always separate. I always separate. They're alliance, man. I never wanted to be that person who's on all the time. That is the most annoying shit in the <laughs> world, man. Like, yo, I mean, I consider myself a funny person and funny things do come out of me <laughs> throughout the day. But I'm not always looking for that joke. I like, yeah, I'm another person up there, man. Like, uh, yeah, I've developed into, I think, organically into a certain kind of comedian. But who I am up there is a completely different person than who I am offstage because nobody would hang with me if I was that guy. You know what I'm saying? I know one. <laughs> that guy's only cool on stage, man. So, Dina, what about the fact that you, a lot of your public speaking is about mindfulness, is about not telling jokes constantly? How strong is the line between this is my stand-up set and this is other ways that I interact with the public? Well, yeah, between stand-up and speaking, they're pretty different. I would say just as like as Daniel and Rodney were talking, one thing I notice with my own stand-up and, and other comedians might feel this way as well, is I do feel an element of like when I first started doing comedy, I feel that part of myself on stage a little bit, like who I was in my life then. And that's become more of a caricature. 
So as I get older and I spend more time doing this, I do feel that separation further and further away from who I am on stage when I'm doing stand-up. But yeah, I would say similar to Daniel, I definitely agree that there's so much of a storytelling element. And that's really how people are communicating with one another in different ways. If you look at a piece of art, it's the same kind of thing. What's the story behind it? So I think we all have that. But I think the persona that we have on stage is, yeah, definitely a caricature. It's definitely a blown up version of one element of ourselves. And I'll add that podcasts are storytelling too. All right, go on. <laughs> yeah, it, I would agree. Let me add a, let me throw in a story here. My father just turned 90 and told the story at the dinner at which we were all at about how he quit show business. So he was a folk singer in California and would also tell a lot of jokes. Like he knew the Smothers Brothers personally, Pat Paulson, like that was the crowd that he was in. So it was a lot of Northern California. He happened to be down in Southern California auditioning for like a steady gig at this club or something. I don't know exactly the details, but he started to tell one of his jokes and somebody in the audience that I guess had seen a previous show yelled out the punchline in advance. And his he was not so sharp in terms of like responding. So he just said the punchline anyway. Nobody laughed. And he, he just regarded this as the reason that he didn't get this steady gig. And it caused him to introspect and say, I should just do something else. And so he crossed the country and got a job at an industrial international sales thing, which is why I exist. So that was in the days way before the internet, you know, and that was from an old school, early 60s, probably 50s, 40s style of joke telling in which stolen jokes and the punchline being ruined. Like, I don't know, it seems like these things were more acute given that we had less of a tradition. The, the thing that Daniel's describing, where if you're all kind of storytellers and you're all performers, so that, as Rodney was saying, like it's not going to be the same if somebody has heard, you know, if you've written down these jokes in some way, or just that way. I remember on like Johnny Carson, they would have the comedians come and in the interview tell jokes to the interviewer as if they were telling like the actual jokes from their stand up, as if they were, you know, actually talking to him. Can I just say that uh, I think it's amazing that you're you're the result of a hack joke. I think it's amazing that you were born. <laughs> your dad I, I, feels so I, bad that he quit comedy. I love that. It's the greatest story I was thinking ever. that, like, if his dad had, like, any crowd work skills, he, he wouldn't exist. He, he wouldn't like, exist. If your dad could riff, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be born, man. <laughs> but, yes. Like, I wonder if you were, like, you were up there in the ether somewhere, just, like, don't answer, dad. Don't do it. I need to come down. (laughs) You've got nothing. I was the heckler, the heckler in a past life. That heckler died. And oh, is this this comedy looper? Is that what this is? (laughs) 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 Oh, man. You know, what's funny, though. That's happened. That happened to me a few times when I first started comedy, man. You know, my joke writing wasn't that sophisticated. And like, it definitely happened once. I'm sure it's happened more than once. Right. I was telling a joke too slow with an obvious punchline and someone got there before me, man. It seems like all you have to do is stare at the guy and go, boy, or something, you know, just (laughs) like do anything and get past that moment. But uh, yes, my whole reason for bringing that up was that was in the old time. It seems like it would be much more difficult now, again, with just being ubiquitous that, you know, somebody has read your stuff from somewhere. Just the whole idea of like recycling your set into the pattern that you might have with a talk show host or something, you know, that kind of stuff that would happen in the 80s, like seems completely bizarre to me now, in part due to this change of technology. Are you talking about like more like kind of like joke theft, kind of like, you know, being able to repeat someone's joke over and over? That's definitely one of the issues. Yeah. Because people are still well, doing that no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> 
that has not ended because of the internet records everything. People do. I hear there's care. a lot of intellectual property theft in China. I wonder if there's somebody doing my act out there. <laughs> That'd be interesting. But the internet. Daniel had hooked me up with Yakov Smirnov, who had told the the story about in Russia, them kind of having the official state sponsored joke set that would then be franchised out to local comedians that would tell it in all these different places. Like that relies on a low tech environment, a sense of locality. That's one of the things I just want to ask about. Do you find like that we've had some loss in this sense of locality of just, you know, this is my hometown comedian, this this whole thing. Like, is that just less of a thing now that we have the internet? No, man, I think it's still a thing, man. I don't know. I think people, comics kind of rep their cities pretty hard, you know, like uh, I love my city. Like I'll, I always kind of like, you know, wherever I go, I make sure that they say in what city I'm from. They always do that. Yeah. Comics really rep where they're from, especially when they move to another place. They will, you know, a lot of comics will move to LA and be like, they won't tell you where they're really from. You know, it's like, oh, I'm from LA. <laughs> so yeah, I think city actually plays a, a major part, major role, like uh, origins kind of a thing. Yeah. And especially with the online space, like if people from a particular city can put in like the hashtag for where they're from and then find comedy specific to that, like they'll start getting a cult following, especially if it's not a big city like LA or New York, but it's somewhere where there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of pride, you know, like I'm from a place outside of Toronto. It's called Scarborough. You probably haven't heard of it, but it's kind of a rougher neighborhood. And I'm very proud of growing up there. And there's a community there. Like if you do jokes specific to that, people from that area are very, very excited. So yeah, I would say internet has just only highlighted that more. Well, it made it less necessary to, for you to move to LA or something. I don't think so, man. People are still moving, going there in uh, droves, man. Daniel will probably be able to tell you. Well, he moved. He's a transplant from New York to L.A. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, right now I can imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of Canadian comics came back from L.A. <laughs> uh, I, like that you know, I like that Scarborough's a rough neighborhood and it's got the word scar in it. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I like a pirate. I like when things like that work out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's funny, like when you're talking about location and the internet, do we get to a point where people just like, I know that IP address, like I live, I have, mine's close <laughs> to it. Like <laughs> there's no location anymore. It's just your IP address. And you know what, man? Like, you know what? The more virtual reality becomes popular. Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, why I not? I know that virtual neighborhood. I, I, I like hearing <laughs> jokes about that digital store. <laughs> I know, Daniel, you've had adventures in local posting with a, was it next door that you were putting stuff on your Facebook about how you were trying to like put jokes for your local community on next door. And in fact, getting kicked off of the service because of it. Yeah, that's a good uh, example, but I got banned for like three months from next door because people are humorless now, I think. And I was basically doing fairly innocuous jokes, very tame and safe stuff. And I thought the line would be much farther, you know, but I'm like, where's the line? Cause Everybody is so sensitive, especially in LA. I would go on Nextdoor and I'd see these ridiculous posts that were not meant to be humorous about like somebody put their dog poop in my garbage can and there's like security footage to go with it. And I'd be like, what is the end goal here for them to come and take it out? Like, what are people talking about? It started with that. And I I just put up a stupid thing because I thought everything was stupid. And I said, you know, I saw creature when i was out walking my dog it ran across the street it may have been a squirrel or maybe it was some kind of other rodent with a bushy tail 
come to think of it, I think it was a squirrel. And it ran across the street and it jetted up a tree. Does anyone know what I should do? I thought that was obviously so stupid. People would know it was humor, but people were saying, you know, you don't have to do anything. Squirrels are, you know, run around the neighborhood all the time. And some people got that it was a joke, but I'm like, all right, well, I guess I have to be a little more on the nose. This is humor. And I, it just started growing from there. And I started posting like, you know, I found a dirty white sock image on Google images. And I said, I found this on Venice Boulevard. And normally I wouldn't do anything, but I know how annoying it is when you have a pair of socks and you lose one. And if anybody wants to claim it, uh, you know, I'm holding on to it for now. So stupid, very innocent jokes like this. And then ultimately what got me kicked off was just, uh, I said, I, I saw a homeless woman in front of Target and I'm pretty sure it's Amelia Earhart. <laughs> I, I, I said, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, I thought I saw like a jet engine in her pile of trash. Whenever I walk by, I say Amelia under my breath. And I think she's turning when I say it. And she always yells, I'm lost, which could be PTSD from the Bermuda Triangle. So obviously, Amelia Earhart is, if she was alive, she'd be dead by now. But people uh, complained to the platform that I was making fun of the homeless and I was banned for three months from next door. And it told me a lot. You got like a good, like five minutes out of that though, right? Like this is a joke that you're telling right now, correct? This is No, I don't know. I never talk about it, but I, I <laughs> what's so sad about it is I never complain about stuff. Like I don't think I've ever written a negative Yelp review and I never understand people who do like, if I go to a restaurant and it sucks, I kind of always give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe it just wasn't my taste or maybe they just had an off night, but I'm not trying to destroy their business. I'm like, you know what? I'm just not going to go back there or I'll give them another try, but whatever, you know, I'm not like interested in tearing them down. And then I see people like write a scathing review on Yelp about a restaurant. And I'm like, what do they do to you? Like, what's wrong? Why are you so mad? Like if somebody saw a joke about Amelia Earhart, homeless lady, and you're like, I don't know, I think it's a little disrespectful to the homeless. Okay. But to be like, I have to remove this person from the platform. This has gone too far. You know, this person is toxic or whatever. To me, that speaks to this, this very sad culture that I think we've developed where people are more interested in tearing each other down than building each other up. And I guess I've always tried to see the good in humanity and I'm not such a negative person. And I hate when things prove me wrong. I don't know. I think there's some part of comedians that are people who are desperately trying to hold on to their inner child, which is also very dangerous, I think, because children don't function very well in the real world. So at the core of a comedian is, you know, usually somebody who wants to share a good kick with everybody in a good way. You know, like I, uh, I think everyone would like this. Let me share the happiness that I found in a, what can be sometimes a dull and, and a harsh world. And being torn down for trying to do that, I think, is tragic. I hear what you're saying. I think as comedians, we already kind of exist on the outside a little bit because we're observing. We're observing things around us. And our way of connecting with people is by sharing those observations. And so we're really looking to connect and hopefully gain that laughter. And if it's not laughter, then you know, that's part of it. But yeah, when it goes the other way, where it starts to feel like that even more of a disconnect when we're already existing as observers, that can be a challenge for sure. We are outsiders. And I think we've always felt like outsiders. There's this duality to that amongst comedians where they embrace it. 
and the outsiders form an inside group of outsiders. And then within that group of outsiders, there's another group of inside outsiders that say, you're outside of this inside group of outsiders. And then comedians get hurt because they're not allowed into that outside group of insiders or inside group of outsiders. The duality is that there's this almost a pride in being an outsider, and yet there's almost a desperation for acceptance. We go on stage and we're like, let us in. I've, we've been on the outside so long. We've got stuff to offer. <laughs> Did you notice how yeah. you know this? Huh? Huh? Yeah, I'm not too bad. <laughs> you try and then you get kicked out of your neighborhood virtually for three months. And you're like, There's no winning. <laughs> These people don't want me. Let's stop for a quick sponsor message. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. So why would you want to replace your shower head? It is a thing you are used to, but there are alternatives that will open your world. And the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower makes your whole shower experience like a spa. It uses atomized droplets, really fills up the space. It feels very luxurious, like you're treating yourself. A great place to think, to replenish, and get the kind with the wand so you can wash your feet and things really easily. It's great. It's got a spray that's 81% more powerful than the competition. But at the same time, it uses 45% less water. Water savings, good for the environment, good for lowering your water bills. With easy self-installation, Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. So a very cool thing. It's got a sleek and modern aesthetic with timeless design available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom. And Nebbia also offers sleek and sustainable bathroom accessories such as shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, and bath mats. I really like the bath mat they provided to me, which is, of course, made out of recycled something or other. It all feels very fancy. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199. And for Pretty Much Pop listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 50 people to use the code PRETTY at nebbia.com slash pretty will get 10% off Nebbia products. Nebbia rarely does deals like this, so it's a great one to jump on. Go to nebbia.com slash pretty. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash pretty. Check out what they have to offer. The first 50 people to use the code PRETTY when checking out will save 10% off Nebbia products. The only exception to this is pre-order products, as Nebbia is currently offering free shipping in the U.S. on these products. Again, that's nebbia.com slash pretty, and use that code PRETTY to save 10%. So as a general thing to guide the remainder of the discussion, I definitely wanted us to talk about this, does the internet ruin everything, what we're getting at with this negativity, and just the dynamic of having the audience be potentially, you know, not just that sacrosanct space of the comedy club, which of course can have hostile and, or, you know, completely indifferent people in it that you have to win over. That's part of the dynamic, but it's so much worse or, or, you know, invites new challenges when you are, you're doing stuff on Twitter, you've lost the context of the rest of your set. Just the internet is made for losing context and for misunderstanding. But in the same way, this is why I was asking about local stuff. Like, you know, when I have a local show, I have kind of my extended family. Granted, that's for music rather than for podcasting. But nationally, you know, if I could get all those people together, like, well, this is my theater is, is I have all these people. It does make me think as one of my first, the things that got me interested in podcasting was listening to like the Nerdist, which, you know, discussions of comedians with comedians talking about comedy and feeling very jealous of the fraternity of comedians. And how even though like, you know, they're using the internet to then speak to everybody, but they're speaking to them as this is our club that we are talking to each other as uh, fellow masters of the craft and all the peons that listen to us are just the, you know, even though it's supposed to bring everybody closer in a way, it sort of reinforced what you were just talking about, Daniel, as the insider group of outsiders. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's probably some kind of revenge aspect to that where they feel like, you know, you didn't let us in and now and now you're on the outside. And I never liked that element of it. It's funny because there's scenes like the alternative scene, which they were always very cliquish and they weren't particularly harsh to me, but they didn't embrace me either. I was, you know, sometimes allowed to perform there, but I was never really in there, you know. And it's funny because I talked to someone once at one point who was like, I perceived as being very in there. And they were like, yeah, I hate the clickishness. I always feel like I'm not part of it. And I go, well, yeah, you don't feel like they're part of it. Does anyone feel like they're part of it? Is it all a big illusion where no one feels like they're part of anything? It's like everything else, though, right? Uh, comedy has its own hierarchy within it, right? And it's like, yes, it's click-based, uh, you know, hierarchy. And the higher up you are in the food chain, you kind of look down at everybody else, right? Like, I don't know, I guess where you were talking about your alternative scene was, I always find like the alternative scene seems to be kind of high up on the... Uh, hierarchy there because they feel like they're the highest brow of comedy right they're like not telling not traditional setup punch and tag whatever they're like doing weird shit so it makes them like you know on another level <laughs> whatever i used to think that it reminded me like when you see movies about like the hot chick you know and then the movie kind of reveals that she's insecure and <laughs> she doesn't think she's the hot chick and then even though everybody thinks she's the popular one. There's like a million movies like that, like Clueless and stuff, right? And then I realized that that's also kind of true of this alternative scene where like for them to exist, they have to feel like outsiders too. Even if they, to us, may seem like, you know, the higher snobby, whatever, in their own mind, they feeling re rejected by your party. Like you're not allowed to be, you know, it's all about a party and you didn't get an invite ultimately. Because, I mean, that's kind of how I've, lately viewed the whole world and politics and everything even the word party is involved in politics you know everybody's just like a kid who didn't get invited to a party and you know meanwhile they're like i wish i was invited to that party it looks like they're having a great time i resent them if everybody just said hey you're all invited to every party just come we'd love to have you and bring whatever you bring to the table i think it'd be like you know, that's the answer to world peace it's just this bigger narrative that divides people Back to the narrative again, huh? Back to the storytelling, right? Yeah, it's it is a circle, all man. It's all a circle, man. Well, that's <laughs> ad politics is storytelling. <laughs> I want I want to hear Dina add some enlightenment to this issue from your your mindfulness speaking and training. Okay, which part of the issue? Because we like <laughs> does the internet ruin everything? The hostility, the you know, we've got greater opportunities for connection, but then much greater opportunities for misunderstanding and for toxicity and all that. My rule of thumb with the internet is you need to have a presence if you are in the entertainment industry, period. You just do. That's where we're at. If you don't have a presence, it's going to be a really big challenge because we're not in the era of your dad's time where people were doing comedy. And even in the 90s, people were calling in to get a spot at a comedy club, right? People were using the phone a lot more. Now, it, now it's the phone, but the phone is a tiny computer that you can keep in your back pocket. So I think you, you need to have that presence. I do think that putting clips of your stand-up, clips of your work online is beneficial for sure. But in terms of reading the comments and <laughs> counting the likes and that stuff, I really try to stay away from that. So in terms of mindfulness and what I'm doing, I, I have to set rules for myself. Like I'm going to spend an hour a day 
on social media, maximum, maybe less, but I try to do that. And I've even gone through periods where I'll take a lot of apps off of my phone so that I can only look at things from a computer because then I can treat it like work. And so I have to do things like that to kind of keep my sanity, (laughs) if I'm being honest, because yeah, I do think it's part of the job to have the presence. But I think if you get sucked in by every comment and the negativity that does float around there, because there's a lot of people who are very unhappy and they take to the internet as a place to kind of find other people who are in that space and they'll find them, right? So because it's your work, you just kind of have to treat it like that when it comes to the online space. That's, that's how I do it anyway. I love the fact that the internet is... I think the internet did more for comedy than anything else could. And I think there's going to be tons of negative because with anything that powerful exists, tons of negativity, just toxic, you know? But there's no way I could be doing what I'm doing right now if it wasn't for the connectivity and the networking that is allowed with the tech and the internet, man, just the stuff that I've been able to learn through tutorials, you know what I mean? That was able to help me have this platform for stand up. I mean, like, you know, the people I've met, like, uh, Dina, have we ever met in real life? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Like I met Dina, like we know each other now because of the internet. You know what I mean? We work together because of the internet. I've never worked with Dina before the pandemic. And now we we get to work together. I cannot see how that is a bad thing. Human beings will be assholes, especially when they're anonymous and they can say shitty things to you without any repercussions. You know what I mean? But using this as a tool, like I've always thought that crowdsourcing and like what social media is doing is probably one of the greatest tools that humanity's ever made. And I think that, yeah, for a comedian, I mean, you know, I literally am able to talk to people because of Facebook. I don't have Dina's number. If it Dina up on Facebook, sometimes you'll hit me up. You know what I mean? Which is cool because it's the only contact I have. I'm communicating all the time. And like, I try not to be on, but I mean, I have to, right? And I think nothing but benefits to me if you can get over all the bullshit. I guess speaking of the bullshit and speaking of Facebook, I remember that you had posted something about you had had like a black comedy show and you would feature one white comedian or something and you were getting like internet pushback from that. It wasn't even a white comic. It was a brown comic, bro. It was crazy. I didn't even know it was a thing. It was like, yeah, because I do an, we do a all black comedy tour in February in Canada. Only one, you know, just a great thing. And we were like, the whole premise is like, it's called the Underground Comedy Railroad, you know? We're thinking, you know what? The whole premise of the whole mechanics is that is like, Bring in somebody, you know what I mean? Less fortunate to a better place, you know? So we're like, you know what? Yeah, we'll feature mostly black comics. We'll always leave a spot for someone who's not black, you know, kind of like we're bringing them from here. We're bringing them up. It'll be nice. And the black, other black comics are getting mad. They're like, yo, how are they having a brown person on the black show? And I was like, what? What is happening here? You know what I mean? It's like, yo, what if the white folks left you or left your people? You know what I mean? I'm just saying like the whole concept, the reason why we called this show, the name that we call it is anyways, whole crazy thing, you know? But uh, yeah, I mean, depending how internet savvy you are though, you know what I mean? That was a shitty thing that happened, but it was powerfully shitty. We were able to reverse it with clever internet tactics, which got the crowd on our side, right? Because when we responded with our post, it was like we took time, we got together as a group, you know what I mean? We wrote it, there was drafts, we like responded, and then the whole community came out and supported us because we were trying to do the good thing. You know what I mean? So like that's a thing that happens online too. You know what I mean? If you can take the time to make the right moves, right? But yeah, I mean, outlandish. Like when did it 
who would do something like that? You know what I mean? What a shitty thing to do. Yeah, that just seemed a good example of that. It seems like the best intentions and no matter how well thought out there is some potential objection. And, you know, that's just I try to take these things as constructively as possible that, you know, Daniel, you're like, well, why would anyone even do that? Why would anyone like? Probably if they felt it was worth their time, even to leave a negative review or whatever, then, you know, they were having a reaction. They were engaged with it in some way. Like they weren't purely shit posting. I mean, maybe I guess it depends how much effort it sort of takes. But I feel like if someone, you know, listening on their phone to a podcast, say, is going to go to their computer and find us on iTunes and leave a shitty review there, like they cared enough, you know, not that I'm going to take everybody's advice, but like you might as well get whatever you can. <laughs> Did they really, though? Did they care enough? Was that a lot of effort? Because if they're on the bus, that's just this. I suppose. I'm too, uh, I have too much of the principle of charity in me, but I, I try to see why someone would feel it is worth their effort to say such a thing. You know, you don't spend a lot of time with that, but I guess, and there's, there's only so much, the fourth comment of the same kind doesn't necessarily cause additional thought. It just becomes... Like you were saying, Dina, one of those things that you need to filter out and just, I'm no longer learning from this. It is merely toxic. They say it takes, what, seven compliments to replace one insult. That's the average, right? That's what I've heard before. And it's kind of stayed with me because I think there's some truth to it. I think if you're just looking for the negative all the time, then of course you're going to find it and it's going to hit that much harder, right? So if you can avoid the comments section as a rule especially on places like YouTube, then yeah, I would suggest that. I've had people write the strangest shit in my YouTube. One guy was like, I'm sorry about your divorce. That's what he wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Was it random or was he replying to like a joke? He was replying to a joke. Like he watched a set, but it was just like, (laughs) okay, cool. I'm glad that's what got, you know what I mean? Like it's not that it could be way worse, but it's just like, you know, like you feel bad for me. That's almost the worst, you know? I no longer understand. I think that's, well, the internet also introduces these parasocial relationships. So like, I no longer understand in the way that I would if I was sitting in a crowd expected to be quiet while you're on a stage and I understand there's a convention with that, but with the podcast space and you're in my ear or, you know, watching you on YouTube, like I just feel a closeness to you that I wouldn't otherwise. And so I, you know, that's just a weird thing. Nobody would come up to you after a show in a club and like, you know, the thing I got from your set is I'm really sorry about your divorce. Like, I think I, people I would do that, actually. Really? I think people would 100% <laughs> yeah, they would. Percent do that. Yeah. yeah they would. <laughs> okay, so maybe I'm overstating this difference in that there's still a parasocial relationship. Maybe it's just, all, I have a theory that it's just all the yeah. heckler. It's all the hecklers from the clubs that go and take to the comment section. And the hecklers in the clubs, they just think it's a conversation between the performer and them. They don't realize that there's a room full of other people. Just like anyone who comments, they don't realize that this is public to literally any set of eyeballs in the world. So it's a weird space, for sure. I had this experience that yours reminded me of that when I was in Edinburgh and I did a, this show about being overweight, but it was, a, it was real. I talked about it in a real way, but I talked about it in a funny way. And I went through this whole thing and, you know, it has a lot of laughs in it. And it, it's also supposed to have some emotional realness to it. And uh, it seemed like I had a really great show. And this woman comes up to me from like Denmark or something. She goes, I feel so bad for you. I'm so sad for your disease and stuff. And I'm like, what? I mean, that wasn't the point. (laughs) Like I felt like 
She's like, hopefully you one day you overcome it. I'm like, yeah, I do hope that. But I mean, you're not supposed to walk away feeling bad for me. That that like threw a wrench in my whole thing. I'm like, am I just have I failed here at what I thought trying to? But you know, did you make did you make passionate love to that woman after? <laughs> Uh, she was like seventy, but not. You know, <laughs> I'm also unmarried, but you know. <laughs> so no. <laughs> so I guess this just the sort of dynamics that are already happening in a live setting just maybe become amplified with the increase of distance and anonymity and people just feeling bold and. But maybe it's not a fundamentally. I don't know. This seems to be what I'm getting out of it. It's not a fundamentally different type of thing in a way that. Maybe we've been led to believe it is just because people are often that rude in person or they just don't understand, you know, will come up to you and say, I, yeah, I had another guy on the show. They would do a live versions of his podcast, which is a comedy podcast. And they would say like, oh, I really like you on the show and you, you not so much. Like somebody that felt like after a live show that somehow this would not be, uh, it's all in fun. It's all the performer audience relationship. You shouldn't take anything personally. We're performers, so we're naturally a more sensitive bunch. So, you know, it's funny when people assume the opposite of performers, that they've got thick skin and they can take it. And I guess we project that confidence on stage, so they think that, but it's usually quite the opposite. Yeah, the only other thing I was going to say is because, uh, Mark, you were saying that, you know, it's not a completely different thing. In some ways, it's, I would say, just a blown up version of what you see at a live show. You can definitely see elements of that online. But I also think like Rodney was saying, it's a tool and the tool is changing all the time. Like right now, TikTok is huge. So TikTok has a very limited amount of time that you have to share whatever it is you're doing. So a lot of comedians, certainly during the pandemic, they were doing short like sketch clips, like standups I know who were doing that. And that, you know, they've got what, 15 or 30 seconds. And so in that way, it's changed a lot. That's very different from a live show where you might get to know a comedian on stage. They're up there for a little while, whereas anything online, usually it's quite short. So you just have to get right to the point. Seems like Rodney, your forum is trying to counter that, that, you know, you don't have to just get a clip off of YouTube or TikTok. You can actually have a real comedy experience. And had you actually, you were just talking about it or, or you've actually introduced like an actual VR element so that you can sit among the audience and, you know, hear them laughing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My whole, cause, uh, I'd been messing around with avatars in VR for a while. And I was like making, you know, I was doing like sketches and stuff for myself. And then. When I saw that there was a connection with Zoom, when I realized there was, I can project myself as an avatar onto Zoom was around the same time the pandemic was hitting and that people started booking online for Zoom shows. And I was like, why the hell would I be me when I could be a goddamn cartoon character? You know what I'm saying? Immediately, I was like, I got to do this. So like, yeah, the first couple of shows were fun to me, you know, and Zoom shows were not fun for me at the beginning at all. I didn't like it. Nobody knew what they were doing because, you know, it's still a new thing. And dude, I mean, it was just a disaster. Audience members were should have been muted when they weren't unmuted. It was just bad all around is a bad thing. But like when I was a cartoon, it was fun for me, you know, and the more the technology evolved and I went through a few apps and then that evolved. And then, dude, like I was able to build a club. I built a comedy club in VR. And VR is, you know, it's 360 and it's like, you know, everywhere you look, it's like, you know, there's presence there. So it felt like I was in a club and then I built an avatar that looked like me. So it felt like I was in this club and then well, I have this giant screen in front of me and the screen has got like the gallery people in gallery mode on Zoom. So it's like, okay, so now I'm in a club at night. I have a body. <laughs> 
and I have people in front of me. This is, this, it felt like stand up comedy, you know? And it was cool because when I was bringing other comics in, because wow. like uh, me, because I was hosting this, I usually start the shows off. I usually host the shows. When I brought other comedians in, they did better because when people saw me first in a stand up comedy club on Zoom, their brains were like, oh, wow. I'm in like, this is like a stand up comedy. I'm in like a stand up comedy club, right? And the comics came on and then the ice was broken. There was no awkwardness. Like, I killed all that. I made sure people were laughing, you know what I mean? Set the stage. And the comics come on and they would feel like a, it was a club. And then we started to use uh, the same background. And then that was it. Like, then all of a sudden the comics were in the same place. You know what I mean? So, yeah, we virtually simulated the comedy experience. And because we're doing all the same things that a club does, like we have our moderators. They're like, you know, when, when someone's talking up in a club, like in a club, when a heckler talks up, you know what somebody should do? It should be the guy, the door guy supposed to walk up to him, tell him to shut the hell up. Or get the hell out. You know what I mean? That's what's supposed to happen. It doesn't always happen, but it's supposed to. We got moderators, man. Yo, someone starts coughing, sneezing, dog starts barking, bam, mute. You're done. <laughs> right. And that's the way you keep people laughing, right? So it could be done, you know, it just takes effort, right? And most people who are doing the shows on Zoom, they don't really put in the effort. Yeah. Rodney also uses all kinds of different avatars to host the comedy shows. So I did one show that was hosted by DMX. I did another show that was hosted by Mr. T. I did another show that was hosted by a giraffe. Um, <laughs> that was a different, that was a kid's show. But yeah, so it was, it's really creative. Like he changed my perception of Zoom shows because it's, it's very, very professional. You feel like you're in a comedy club. And so you want to do your best material. And so as a result, it's a great show. So it's, yeah, you guys should check it out for sure. I think there's two or three online clubs in the States not doing what we're doing, but like, yo man, they're making like mad money. Like they're, they're booking like Bill Burr. They're booking like all the top guys in the game. We're small potatoes compared to the American companies, man. These guys are like, they don't give a shit about the backgrounds. They're just booking names. So, so we're, we're still not to the point of putting on the VR goggles. You know, I have the thing I can put my phone into in certain kinds of videos, you know, that'll, it'll appear in 360. Uh, I would think that's still like a technology that most people are, not quite ready to... That's also the most low-budget VR. Yes, you can, well, yeah. yes, of course, of course. That's the one that... But if you just use your phone and basically a piece of cardboard, you know, whatever, it costs five bucks or whatever to get the holder. So that's at least something that most people could do. I'm not the originator of this shit. There's okay. like virtual online clubs. There are people who are watching virtual reality shows as avatars in virtual reality. And there are comics who are performing as avatars. Like, I don't do that shit because there's no money in it. Like I will perform as an avatar to other avatars. I don't see a point of doing that. But yeah, there's a bunch of people doing that shit like all the time. You know what I mean? On like all those, uh, there's a bunch of apps out there, VR apps out there that you can like, you know, it's like second life. Just go, you hang out, you put on your skin and you kind of like do your avatar thing. Well, <laughs> we should wrap up any final words, thoughts that we haven't yet covered. Daniel, can we start with you? I mean, there's so many thoughts we haven't covered, but. <laughs> no, we've said all uh, the thoughts, know. all the thoughts. <laughs> I'll just say that uh, I enjoyed this and thank you and thank you to the other comedians and thank you for your very interesting perspectives. I really enjoyed everything you guys said. And Rodney, that sounds really interesting what you're doing. That's very cool. Yo, I'd love to have you on, man. Uh, Let's uh, hook up on the internet in a good, positive way. All right. Sure. Yeah, that sounds nice. And uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of nice to hear about good things going on in the internet because sometimes i just feel like even with facebook like you know i went on yesterday and it was you know beat up on joe rogan day i feel like you know i'm like you know what i'm gonna just say i like joe rogan because i do i like him i listen to him and and i just wrote yeah i like joe rogan and it's like throwing a piece of chum in the water and all the piranhas come at you (laughs) 
and uh, (laughs) the unbelievable responses that you get, like it's, I really do feel like the opposite of the benefit of the doubt is given to people online. So when I hear about like what you're doing and positive things on the internet that are bringing people together and uh, you and Dina are friends because of it. I just think that's really nice and heartwarming. And uh, and thank you guys for uh, listening to me ramble. Dina, any final words? No, just thank you. I, I enjoyed the conversation as well. And it was nice to meet you, Mark, and you, Daniel. And I know Rodney well. I'll see Rodney again for sure. But yeah, you get like there is a lot of positivity to the online space. And I think you just have to look for it like anything else. If you look for negativity anywhere, you'll for sure find it. And sometimes it's more of a challenge to find the positive. But if you commit to that, you will find it. And so, yeah, there's people doing amazing things like what Rodney's doing with the Unknown Comedy Club. And I don't like that's not going anywhere. I think that as comedy kind of molds into the new space for the rest of this year in 2022 onward, I think there's going to be a hybrid world. I think there's going to be live shows with a streaming component. I think there's going to be more of a virtual show that can be broadcast across the country, across the world, you know? And so for that, it's amazing. It's an amazing tool. And so I just try to think of it like that personally. How long before they start mandating masks on avatars? (laughs) (laughs) The, the, The avatar is the mask. Yeah, you're just a mask. <laughs> It'll all be an avatars of the mask, Jim Carrey. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, that's not a good joke they're done. All right. <laughs> Thank you, listeners. Thank you, comedians. So long. Thanks, Mark. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.